Galatians chapter 5 is what we're going to be taking a look at here. And uh, around verse 23 is what we'll be taking a look at. Uh, what we've been doing as a church, we've been going through the entire book of Galatians. We started this in the fall. And uh, we got to this place which is commonly called the fruit of the Spirit. And what we've been doing is we've been taking a week, each week, looking at one of the fruit of the Spirit, focusing on them for two different reasons. The first reason, primary reason, is because first and foremost, each of these fruit of the Spirit are that. They're from the Spirit. They're fruit from God, come from God. We don't make them up. We don't generate them. We don't cause them to happen. They come naturally from God. So these are actually characteristic traits of God himself. And so looking at these characteristic traits of God himself is actually very beneficial and fruitful for our own lives, let alone anything else. Secondly, the reason why we're taking a look at these, wanting to make sure that we understand what they are, is because Paul's going to say that these fruit of the Spirit are actually evidences of God's supernatural work at, at work in your life. So in other words, if you read this list and you're like, I'm none of these things. I never live according to these things. I'm never loving. I'm always grumpy. I always hate everyone. Um, I'm just always full of sourness and bitterness. It's, It's possibly because a work of salvation has never been done in your soul. But if in reality God has done something in your life, there is an evidence, a work of the Spirit of God working inside you, and there's the evidence of that is going to be what Paul's going to say, the fruit of the Spirit. These things will actually be at work in your life. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not to complete perfection all the time. All right, That won't happen. Um, but the reality is some trace elements will be actually taking place in your life, or at least the desire will be there. So if you're not loving, you'll at least have a desire to be loving. If you're not at peace, there's going to be at least a desire to want God's shalom or peace in your life. If you're not kind, you'll at least recognize that in your life and think, I'm not kind. I should be kind. God, help me to be kind. That's what we're talking about. So those two reasons is, are really why we're looking at taking a week each week, taking a look at each one of these fruit of the Spirit are. Because God, these are his characteristics. Secondly, because these are actually supernatural evidences of God at work in your life. That should be there if you're a believer. So with that being said, I want to pray and then we'll get to work and uh, we'll ask a handful of questions and hopefully try to answer them to try to understand what uh, meekness or what gentleness is. That's the one that we're going to take a look at today is gentleness. Uh, if you got the old King Jimmy, it'll probably say meekness. And uh, because... Probably, I'm banking on the fact that not one of you used the word meek over the past week, right? Did any of you, like, use the word meek? One person. One person. All right, two people. Both of you. That was it. Two of you used the word meek. The reality is nobody knows what the word meek is. Uh, The other word that's actually translated here is gentleness, and uh, we'll try to help us understand what this is about, what it looks like and how it plays into our lives, and how it actually represents God. So let's pray, and we'll get to work. God, we ask for your help. We need your help. And so we just commit our way in your hand. We just recognize, Father, apart from your spirit working and moving in our hearts and our lives, um, all we're left with is just a Bible study. We don't want just Bible study. God, we don't want just simply to fill our minds with knowledge. We want our hearts to absolutely be moved by the gospel. We want our hearts just to be captured by a God that is so big, so beautiful, who owns all things, who controls all things, and greatly loves us. 
So God, just open our eyes to help us to see that you are a treasure beyond description, bigger, better, greater than anything that we can fix our hope on in this world. Pray for your help to do that in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First question is this, is what is gentleness? Um, The Greek word gentleness, just for sake of uh, those of you that are Greek scholars, which I'm not, as I've said before, I just got good Bible software. Priutas is the actual Greek word. Um, It actually shows up in a lot of different forms in the New Testament. Um, The Bible from the Old Testament was actually translated into Greek. Um, This is called the Septuagint. There's a lot of different ways in which this same word is actually shown or displayed even throughout the Old Testament or the Septuagint. Um, The Greeks actually valued this particular word or valued what this word stood for. And again, like I said, some of the older translations would identify this word as meekness. Um, Some people have said meekness is like power under restraint, so on and so forth. But the Greeks actually valued this word with with stipulations. In other words, I'll give you an example. The Greeks would say something like this. Rulers should be gentle uh, with their own people, but stern with others. In other words, the idea is that if you're a ruler, you're king, uh, you should be really nice, really kind to the people that are in your kingdom, your subjects, but people outside of your kingdom, well, you can be mean to them. All right, you can abuse them, you can mistreat them, you can steal from them, because after all, they're not part of your club. Um, They would also say something like this, um, that laws should be severe, but judges should show leniency. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a court system where the the law's like, look, you raped 15 women, um, but I'm going to be lenient on you today. I'm feeling really kind, feeling really gentle, and uh, you can go home. In fact, afterwards, we'll go get a beer together. All right, how about that? Like, that would be a bad judge. We wouldn't want a judge like that. The, the thought of somehow a judge actually showing leniency to somebody is, is not okay. All right, Aristotle would put it this way. Here's what he said. Gentleness is a mean, or this is what I, no, I actually changed the word up here. I didn't put it in my notes. Gentleness is the middle ground, so the mean, the middle ground between bad temper and spineless incompetence, between extreme anger and indifference. So if you're the type of person that's always angry, always got a temper, always just you know, full of anger and rage and frustration and aggression, but you have absolutely no uh, sense of showing kindness or being able to calm that, um, then you're not meek is the idea. Or if you're just constantly full of indifference where you just don't really care what's going on, you just always carefree, nothing seems to rock you, move you, you never get angry even at evil, you just never get angry at anything, um, Aristotle would say that, that, that's not meekness. Meekness is somewhere the middle ground between these two things. Um, like I said already, that Paul's going to say that meekness or gentleness, this word, priutis, is sort of a, this, a description of who God is. It's a characteristic of who God is, but it's also a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of what God works forth in our lives. Curiously, what you'll find out about God is that unlike the way some of the Greeks would have viewed a ruler showing kindness to his people, but showing non-kindness or not being nice to people that are not his people, it's interesting you compare that to God. That's not how God works. And in the same way, um, if you were to compare the idea of a judge uh, showing leniency to his people, but even though the law might be sort of this harsh taskmaster, this thing that has the hard edge, but the judge can show leniency, again, that's an inconsistency with regard to God as well. And I think what you'll find with God is God is both perfectly just meaning upholds righteousness, but he's also perfectly kind. This is absolutely amazing. 
This is what Jonathan Edwards would actually uh, describe about God as being one of his excellencies, one of his beautiful aspects, one of his beautiful characteristic traits of God, that God is both perfectly just and perfectly kind at the same time. This is amazing, because this is not how we are. I'll give you an example. Most people are either hardcore into justice. Let me give you an example maybe within the Christian realm. There are some people that are all about Christians, that are all about holiness. They're all about living the righteous lifestyle, not sinning, not doing things that look sinful, not walking in ways that carry or carry some sort of ideal or ideology of sinful practices amongst them. So these type of people, if you sinned and you went to them and confessed your sin, they would criticize you. They'd put you down. These are the type of people you wouldn't necessarily want to go to and confront sin to because they would judge you. They would condemn you. They wouldn't show kindness to you, right? Those are the people you typically run from. But on the contrary, there are other people that sometimes we run to, say, for example, when you're in sin or when you've stumbled or you've done something wrong. And sometimes there are other people that are really nice. They know how to commiserate with you. They know how to feel your pain. They're very full of compassion and empathy. They can sit down with you. They'll cry with you. They'll hug you. They'll feel your pain. Uh, There will be some sort of emotional connection that you will have with them. But sometimes, oftentimes, these type of people rarely bring out the straight edge or the sharp edge of the law and bring about some level of justice. So oftentimes what you find are two extremes. People that are very full of compassion but very light on the law or very light on justice. And then you got others that are hardcore into justice but very light on compassion. And that's the way we typically see, for the most part, people in this world. But that's not God. God is altogether all about justice. God is altogether all about gentleness. This is, this is one of the excellencies, one of the beauties of God that we can stand back in and just look at God and be absolutely amazed, because this is what the Bible is going to describe about this. We'll show you how these two elements actually come together in a moment here. But with that being said, the second thing I want you to really kind of look at is really this question of how does gentleness work its way into the world? And it's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus actually has a lot to say about meekness, gentleness, and the way this world operates, and the way that we should operate within this world. And what he's going to say is in sort of his premier uh, teaching on what we typically call the Sermon on the Mount. And it was in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll get back to this verse and look at it a little bit more in depth in a second here. But Matthew 5, Jesus will say something like this, blessed are the meek, for the meek will inherit the earth. And so the reality is, is when you look at this earth, the way this earth works, the question that sort of underlies everything on planet earth is this, who gets the earth? That's the big question of the day. I'll show you what I mean. The the big question of the day is, who gets the earth? Uh, Who gets who gets the oil reserves? Who, who gets the natural gas deposits? Who gets the oceanfront property? Who gets the mountains? Who gets islands in the middle of the South Pacific? Who gets the power? Uh, who gets the gold? Who gets the precious gemstones in Africa? The tribal Warlords or some sort of modernized nation from the West? Who gets it? Okay, this was the question in the first century. This is, by the way, the question that's being asked today by everybody. Everybody in the world system, all the way up to the very top, all the way down to the sixth grade school playground. Who gets the world? 
the older you get, the bigger your world gets, right? When you're in sixth grade, the question is relevant to who gets the jungle gym, all right? Who gets the blacktop? Uh, who, gets, who gets the tennis courts? Who gets the basketball courts? That's the world to a sixth grader. But the older we get, the bigger our world gets, the bigger our hopes get, and that's, that is the question of the day. That is the question that drives the world in which we live in. And the answer to that question is, is very simple. The rich, of course, get it. The powerful get it. The educated get it. The people who know people that are rich and educated get it. Right? The people who are strong, the people that have got the most hardest elbows, the people who know how to fight, the people who know how to step over those that are in the way, those are the ones who get the world. This question was no doubt in the minds of people in the first century in which Jesus spoke this statement. In the first, in the first century, the way the question would have been answered, who gets the world, everybody would have said, well, that's obvious. Rome does. Caesar does. He gets the world. He's got the military might. He's got the power. He's got the money. He's got the anointing of the gods. He's got the endorsement of all the republic. He gets the goods. He gets the world. And really the way this works itself out is that if you recognize Caesar as Lord, which is the way they would identify themselves, you get the world with Caesar. You get Caesar's world. You get access to the roads. You get access to the military. So if something happens, you get protected by Caesar's might, Caesar's power. You get the ability to travel as far as you want. You're a Roman citizen. You get the world because you've got Caesar. But first century, if someone asks the question, is Caesar Lord? And you say, no, actually Caesar's not Lord. God's Lord. Caesar's not Caesar's usurped God's authority, you get condemned and crucified in that world, in Caesar's world. Well, it's ironic, but Caesar no longer exists. So Caesar obviously doesn't have the world. It was an illusion. But the same question still is relevant to this day. Who gets the world? There was a long time, period of time, where England thought, we get the world. Well, England had a baby called America. We think we get the world. Why? Because of X, Y, Z. We can lay it down and give our reasons why we think we have the world. But the point that I would make is this, is this is the relevant question of the day. So from a very secularized perspective, the next slide you'll see, from a very secular perspective, you get this idea that the world actually belongs, ah, is that the right one? We'll find the right slide. There we go. In this humanistic view, the people who get the world are the strong, the powerful, the mighty, the good-looking, the ones who have advanced degrees, the ones who are of a particular social class, those who are of a particular skin color. You're the ones that get the world. If you're born with good looks, you get the world. If you got smarts, you get the world. If you're artistic, you get the world. If you're an entrepreneur, the world's yours. So we have to slice the world up according to the way that we think about it. And this is the way the secular world works. This is the way all world works. All the world. This is the reason why oftentimes, by the way, sometimes we will get, we'll get more to this in a second, why oftentimes we feel the need to fight. Because we feel unless we fight to keep our slice of the pie, 
then no one else is looking out for ourselves, our own interests. There's nobody looking out for our interests. I've got to look out for my own. After all, I've got to get the world. I've got to be smart. I've got to be better then. I've got to be wiser then. I've got to earn more money so I can get my slice of the pie. And that's what's going on. But God has his own perspective. The next slide, you'll take a look at this. God has a view. And what you'll see, and again, go back real quick to Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see this real fast. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus, in this message, speaks this thing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, Jesus, most scholars believe he's actually using a little bit of a literary device here that's going to hearken back to an Old Testament passage, Psalm 37. Uh, You can turn there real quick. Um, and I want you to see this. But real quick, what, what Jesus is doing is actually very fascinating. Because what Jesus is doing, because he was a teacher, he's actually offering commentary on a very well-known verse. What you need to understand is that first century Jews, they were very, very familiar with their Bibles. They, they knew their Bibles. They knew the story of Moses. They knew the story of the Exodus. Most of them would have memorized large portions of the Bible from youth. Uh, most of them, no doubt, their hymn book would have actually been the Psalms. So they would have been very familiar with Uh, what Jesus was quoting because this was actually a psalm and what Jesus was doing most scholars believe was this literary device intended to help them to finish the concept to bring their mind to something to help them to finish the concept in some way we kind of do the same things I'll give you an example if you were to finish the line if I were to say who let the dogs out thank you you just proved my point that's what Jesus does he's like the meek will inherit the earth and immediately they all go back ah psalm 37 Ah, it's interesting. What's he talking about? Well, he wants them to immediately go back to Psalm 37 to understand. It's a literary device to trigger them to go back to catch something of a bigger picture. Jesus is a good rabbi, a good teacher. He's not creating things. He's not being innovative in a sense. He's not making this up. He's actually taking the Old Testament uh, that's already been there, already been in existence, already would have been known, and he says, I want to offer commentary on it because you've been taught By the world in which you live in, that the strong, the mighty, the good-looking, the powerful, the socially advanced, those are the ones that get the world. But the ones really that get the world, the ones truly that inherit all things, are the meek. It's the same word. Praetis. It's the word that we get the word gentle from. So take a look at this. I want to see this because everything that Jesus is about to say, I think actually in in the Sermon on the Mount, to some degree, for the most part, is actually linked back to Psalm 37. You'll see sort of overtones or hints of this throughout Psalm 37. So take a look at this. It starts out like this. Fret not yourself, or do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious because of wrongdoers. He says in verse 2, for they will soon fade like the grass withers and the green herb. And so Jesus, or Jesus is referring to the psalm because he knows what the psalmist has to say. And the psalmist basically starts out, says, don't fret. I know that's a word that you don't use that very often, but in the original Hebrew, it basically means stop freaking out. Really? No. But that's my interpretation of it. So the point of the matter is, is he's quoting from this Old Testament psalm. He says, don't freak out because all you guys are typically doing, you're freaking out because of evildoers. There's evildoers all around you. It seems like they're prospering. It seems like evil is constantly advancing. With no stops being taken out, it just keeps advancing. Every time a roadblock gets put in front of it, a roadblock gets diverted. And it seems like evil just keeps moving forward. Nothing seems to stop the advancement of evil. So our tendency to see evil advancing is to freak out. The psalmist says, don't freak out. Because even though the evildoer may prosper, they're like grass. And they'll fade. 
Anybody here today that is, is not originally from San Luis or is, is that, you're just visiting us right now from another place? All right, glad you guys are here. I'm going to tell you a little dark secret about our area, all right? The happiest place in North America. Here, here's, here's the dark little secret. Because right now you're walking around outside, you're like, oh my gosh, this place is beautiful. It's green, it's awesome. Okay, here's the dark secret. In three weeks, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In three weeks, maybe six weeks max, everything, everything is going to be brown. Golden. All right. That sounds nicer than brown. All right. It gets golden. Everything dies. Everything dies. That beautiful grass you see on the side of the, you know, the mountains out there, with, there's like cows out there grazing, and there's horses like snorting around. It just absolutely looks like paradise. It is paradise. But the reality is, is that in a few weeks, all the grass that you see that is beautiful, all the beautiful green and lushness at some point will die. And the psalmist is saying, look, you guys are freaking out because of evil that is advancing, or it looks like it's advancing, or it looks like evil has capitalized on this planet. They win. They've taken possession. They have absolute authority, autonomy, and control over all things. But God says, look, they're like the grass. They're like the grass. They're here today. Tomorrow they're gone. Tomorrow it dies. So don't freak out. Here's what he goes on to say. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Don't freak out. Don't fret yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Here's what he says in verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to more evil. This is a very interesting thing the psalmist says because our natural propensity when we see evil is we want to freak out. We want to resist. We want to fight. And there is a natural tendency, a natural righteousness in which we should be angry at evil. But the way that we deal with evil has to look different than the way the world deals with evil. This is one of the reasons why Paul's going to say in the New Testament, don't answer evil with evil. If you answer evil with the evil, you may think you're actually quenching evil. You're not quenching evil. You're becoming a part of the evil. You're not extinguishing wickedness. You're just joining wickedness. You might be extinguishing a fire with gasoline. That's all you're doing. You're like, yeah, but it's liquid. Yeah, it's like liquid fire. You're not doing anything. You're not helping the problem. You're not fixing the issue. You're not solving anything. You're just contributing to the evil, to the wickedness. So what the psalmist says is don't get angry. Forsake your wrath because it only tends to more evil. In verse 9, he says, for the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. So here's the first hint. Those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Why? Because God has some sort of connection with the land, and he has some sort of desire to rid the land of wickedness. Okay, you following so far the line of reasoning in the psalm? Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will be there, uh, he will not be there. So here's what he's saying. Yes, wicked is prevalent. Yes, it is there. Yes, it exists now. And yes, it looks like it's in a fortified palace and it's not going to budge. But what the psalmist is trying to convey and communicate is that even though wicked may feel impenetrable, 
In other words, it, it's never going to go away. This plight on society, this plight in humanity, this plight that's in our own heart, even though it may feel like it will never go away, God says one day it will go away. One day this disease, which is basically destroy this earth, will one day be no more. God has a plan. Verse 11, he says, but the meek, the meek will inherit the land. And then he says, and delight yourselves in abundant peace. So here's what I want to try to piece together for you. We get the idea of meekness, right? He just said that. The meek will inherit the land. Uh, Again, pushes forward to Matthew chapter 5. We have meekness. We have those who inherit the land. And we have trust in God because God's got a plan. So you put these three concepts together. And I think what the psalmist is trying to say, which Jesus is no doubt elaborating on, is that, look, our lives are prone to constantly freaking out, constantly worrying, constantly full of anxiety because we think feel unless somebody does something, i.e. me, then nothing will get done unless somebody's passionate about wickedness and evil in this world the way I am, then nothing will get done. And basically what Jesus is trying to convey through the psalmist by way of commenting on it is that no, no, no. That's not how you get the earth. That's not how you bring calm. That's not how you bring shalom or peace or rule or order to your world, to this world. It just adds to it. You can't bring peace. You can't bring shalom by being freaked out. It doesn't work that way. The way the peace comes, the way the shalom comes, is that the meek, the gentle, will actually inherit the earth. Not those who push themselves forward. Not the ones who grab. Not the ones who have the power. Not the ones who have the good looks. Not the ones who have the might, the education. That's such good news to us. Because so many, especially maybe not so much in our culture, but how many of our other cultures throughout the world have been sort of these second-class communities, people who have been impoverished, who have absolutely nothing, who feel as if unless somebody stands up for them, they have no voice whatsoever in society. And here's what Jesus is trying to say to this group of people there in the first century who feel as if there's nobody speaking on behalf of them. He says, no, no, no. You know who gets the earth? the meek will get the earth. And the reason why the gentle, the meek, will get the earth is because they know one overriding, all-encompassing reality. Here's what it is. The earth belongs to God. The earth belongs to God. The universe belongs to God. There's not one square inch Throughout all the cosmos in which God does not look out over all things and proclaim, mine. It's all his. That's God's point. Because all of the cosmos, all order, all things are under God's hand, God's control. God can say, I'm at rest. And if you trust me, you too will be at rest. And therefore, the way that you fight, the way that you resist, the way that you stand against wickedness is going to look different than the way the world would. Everything is mine. I own it all. There's not one square inch in which my name is not plastered on it. It belongs to me. Yes, it's inhabited currently by enemies, people who live in sin, sinfulness, sinful practices, sin, period, in general. It's here. God says, but I have a plan. I have a plan. I've had a plan. 
And I'm in process of working that plan out. This is one of the reasons why, to be quite frank with you, it's kind of interesting. The past year, man, we've seen some of the most unbelievable cataclysmic events that have happened on the planet. I mean, I think within the years I've been alive, I mean, a tsunami that's created by an earthquake that wiped out so many people, that brought such devastation, or even just the past week, the storms that have killed over you know, 300 people in our own country, I wonder if somehow, if you can just pause for a moment and listen to the devastation, hear somehow echoes that are within earthquakes or echoes from tsunamis or echoes from the devastation or the storm. Somehow within the echo of those things is a voice that's saying, it doesn't belong. Your 4,000 square foot house on ocean front property that you claim is mine and you put a gate around it and you say it's mine and you have an electric fence and pit bulls and security cameras and you say it's mine in an instant God wipes it out and says it's not yours it's mine it's all mine you can lay claim to none of it it's as if God just says it's all mine it's all mine and I give it to whom I choose. It doesn't belong to the rich, the advanced, the good-looking, the powerful, the warmongers. It belongs to those who trust in me. It belongs to those who humbly, faithfully trust me. That's amazing to think about that. That this unbelievable planet, even though it's fallen, God says, I have a plan to restore it. I have a plan to rid it from its evil, from its wickedness. I have a plan to cut the tumor out without destroying the whole thing. It's my plan. Second, next question I want to take a look at is this. Is how should gentleness work itself in God's kingdom? Because this gets kind of really practical, practical here. So I want, to, I want to kind of look at this at least on two levels, maybe a third if I got time. The first level is this, dealing with the individual. How, how does this work its way into the individual? Because here, here's the thing in our lives, all right? On a very practical level, one of the reasons why we tend to not be gentle with other people, one of the reasons why I think we are and can be prone to fly off the handle and lose our cool and get freaked out and feel like we want to micromanage everything and bring control into a circumstance and just override systems and just exercise our own dominion, might, and power what not is because somehow at the end of the day lay a distrust that somehow if, if, if I don't speak forth, if I don't somehow communicate that I'm in control, then someone actually might think my, my life is disorderly. I'll, I'll give you an example of this, two simple ones, all right? Let, let's, say, let's say your car breaks down, all right? And you're like, I got to take my car in to get fixed. So you take it into Bubba, all right? Now, now, now Bubba is not a very good mechanic and uh, you know, what he thought was going to take half an hour turns out to like, turn into like a two-day job. And Bubba's like, look, here's the deal. I, I, I got a car. I'll loan you. I'll just let you use it. You can take it for the next week until I'm done with your car. And, and Bubba shows you the car. And it's like 1969 trashy, junky Pinto. All right? It's like got dents, nasty. You're like, really? There's like no seats. Like got springs sticking out. It's very uncomfortable. But you're like, I need a car. So you're driving around your car, right? You go see your buddies downtown. You cruise up to them. First thing that you say to them, you're like, ah, this ain't my car. No, this, this isn't mine. Don't, don't get any wrong ideas about me, all right? Because this is not my lot in life. Th this car is not me. It doesn't define me. This, this is not who I am. 
I uh, just, just want to make that clear, all right? For some of you, you're like, gosh, you know, some of you hipsters out there, there's some of you, all right? You're like, gosh, man, a Pinto would be pretty sweet. All right, so here's an analogy for you. You go to Bubba, and Bubba's like, look, all I have is like this brand new Hummer, all right? Some of you that are like all green and hemp, and you're all into just like vegan type stuff, like for you, the worst thing for you is to drive away in an eight mile per gallon Hummer, all right? So you go downtown, you find your friends that are eating at no other place than Natural Cafe, you walk in there like, you're like, look, it, it's not my car. That Hummer is not mine. I'm borrowing it from Bubba because my car's getting fixed, right? My Volkswagen bus, 600, is getting fixed. All right, I just want to be clear on that. All right, I, I am not that Hummer. So here's the deal. We're, we're, all right, let me give you another one. This, this is for you moms. To me, moms, you, you go down to the park and you see your good friends down there. They're playing. And your the friends, you know, they got their little kids and they're all dressed up nice and they're all looking clean. And your kid, the hair's all out of whack and he's got like a sticker, you know, a sucker stuck on his shirt and, and you know, different looking socks on. The shoes aren't tied. And you're like, look, I just want to be up front. I was running really late. My husband dressed him. All right. Because you're deeply concerned about your identity somehow being tied in with not having power, not being strong, not having it together, somehow being disorganized. You're like, no, 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 that's not my lot. That's not my earth. That's not my world. That's not my jungle gym. All right, my jungle gym has order in it. My jungle gym has good, nice cars. My identity is a nice fuel economic type car. That's my life. That's, so if anything interrupts that, you, you feel very aggravated and agitated to the point where you feel you've got to work very hard over time to convey to everybody around you, this is not your piece of the pie. You just are stuck with it temporarily. You're deeply concerned about your identity because you feel unless you fight to preserve your identity, no one else will. Your world you got to fight to keep it. Here's what Paul is going to say in the book of Ephesians. Uh, he says this in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all, humanity, or with all humility and gentleness. That's the word gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. So Paul's going to say to the individual person, he's going to say, look, he's speaking to a group of people, but he's also targeting individuals. He's like, look, you guys need to walk in a way that's full of gentleness because the reason why he says this is our tendency is to not walk in gentleness. He's going to go on to say in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, for there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called with one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. So Paul's point is that he realizes there's a tendency for us to be deeply concerned about our identity, and therefore we want to make certain that we keep our identity and so therefore, by keeping our identity, we become sometimes pretty aggressive. We'll fight to keep our identity. We'll fight to make certain that people think properly about us. And if people start thinking a little bit differently about us, we get very frustrated by that. So we immediately slash back, fight back, kick back, resist, somehow to, to protect our world. We want our world. And so we throw an elbow, we drop a kick to somehow get our world back into some sort of decency and order because we're deeply concerned about losing it. And here's what Paul's going to say. If you're a Christian, all of you are one. You're one in the body of Christ. You're one church. Therefore, God doesn't look at you with favoritism. God doesn't look at you and say, you know what? I like the ones that have got a PhD. Those are the ones I love the most. God's not looking at the ones that are of a particular skin tone and saying, you know, I, I actually prefer 
that skin tone over that skin tone. It's not how God works. And believe it or not, God is actually not looking at some who have some doctrinal discrepancies over others who think they have doctrinally perfection, perfected their understanding of the Bible, and saying, you know what, I, I actually feel like I love those who are of this particular genre over this particular genre. So what Paul is saying is that those who walk in gentleness are those who, first of all, are able to understand they're one in God, just as God is one in himself, and that they are accepted by God, not on the basis of anything they've done, that God simply accepts them on the basis of free grace alone. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, when you live with that understanding, you feel as if you don't need to go out and try to carve an identity for yourself, because your identity is actually found in God. God becomes your identity. This is one of the reasons, let me just say this as a side note, why the early church radically prospered. All right, that's not to say they didn't have issues, they didn't have problems, they didn't have divisions, they did. But they radically prospered. Many of them being willing to suffer and die and pay the ultimate price of giving their life for Jesus. Because even though they were following Christ, there were moments when people mocked them, made fun of them, laughed at them, scorned them, did all of these things against them, and yet in reality, they looked at all of the mockery, all of the scorning, all of the shame, and they said, you know what? Jesus received mocking, scorning, and shaming. We're not better than him. He didn't freak out. And because our identities in Christ, they might mock us, but that's not us. We are with Christ. And they can, they can mock me. They can mock the way I dress, mock the way my haircut looks. They can mock the clothes that I wear. They can mock anything about me but in reality at the end of the day i'm identified with christ they can't take christ away from me you can take my life but you can't take jesus so they were actually able to be the most free people in the entire world literally they had nothing to lose one of the reasons why we have this tendency to become so preoccupied with ourselves as to say because if somebody mocks us, we have a lot to lose. Our identity is, is in our perception of, by other people. We want people to think highly of us. And if someone mocks us, if someone says something negative about us, something points out the obvious to us, we are just wrecked. It's because somehow our identity has been placed in the wrong thing. And so what Paul's trying to say is that, look, if you have your identity placed in the right place, then you can actually treat others with gentleness. You can treat others with gentleness. The second thing I want to take a look at is this idea of the gentleness within the church. Because sometimes people can ask the question, well, what about, what about sin in the church and what about doctrinal impurity in the church? Um, so are we just supposed to be gentle to everybody? I mean, let's say if somebody is in sin or somebody is doing something wrong or they preach some foul, false doctrine or false teaching, do you just get gentle and be nice with everybody and not deal with anything? No, because again... You misunderstand what gentleness is. Gentleness is not just simply sweeping things under the rug. Gentleness is not just simply throwing out justice. Gentleness is understanding how to bring justice together in a very clear way with truth. Where truth and justice are not in opposition to, with each other. Justice and truth actually work properly together. And here's how. Let me give you a couple examples of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Paul's going to write to a young man by the name of Timothy. And here's what he says. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So obviously there are these opponents in the early church that are causing problems. 
problems in their church. We don't know exactly what they're doing. Maybe they're teaching false doctrines. Maybe they were aggressively, physically getting uh, nasty with Paul and Timothy. And so what Paul says to Timothy is, Timothy, when you deal with your opponents, deal with them in a way that's very gentle. Then he says, because perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. So here's what Paul is going to say is that, Timothy, look, you've got to deal with sin, and you've got to deal with opposition in the church. You don't just turn your head against it. You just you know, ignore it, act like it's not there, because things like that can become a cancer, and it can become bad within the church. But the way that you deal with it is you deal with it in a gentle way. At the end of the day, what your ultimate goal is, is you want to see people set free from traps and snares that they've been brought into by the devil. devil. That has literally brought about some sort of enclosure around their life, keeping them trapped. Their world becomes very small. Their world becomes broken down. Their world becomes something that is just is not operating, functioning properly. And Paul says, look, you've got to deal with sin. You've got to deal with false doctrine. You've got to deal with false ideologies that lead away from the gospel. But the way that you do it is in a gentle way. And the reason why you deal with it is because you don't want to see people be trapped. You don't want to see people go on a path that leads to death. See, look it. Somebody who claims to be loving, but who does not address the issue of sin in people's lives, is really not loving. Because if sin leads to some sense of bondage, some sense of slavery, where you become a slave to sin, then people who love you will want to try to help you. Not get nasty, not get mean, not get cruel, not treat you with despite, not treat you with contempt but love you, love you to the point to speak truth, but speaking truth in such a way that's absolutely full of gentleness. Let me give you another example. Titus chapter three, verse two says this, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle. So again, Paul uses that word again. He says, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, dishonest, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God Our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the works that were done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on those so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So here's what he's saying. Gentleness will lead to good works because there is a security that you have in your soul that frees you, liberates you, to live in a way that can show kindness and goodness to other people, regardless of religion, regardless of whether or not they're in sin or not. That's what Paul's saying. Look, even if some dude is a full-on, straight-up, like, locked-in sin, meth addict, whatever, somebody that's maybe not even a Christian, straight-up atheist, Paul's like, you know what, you can still show kindness to them. I don't know where in the world this idea came into evangelicalism that says, be rude to the atheist because he dislikes God. Be rude to the person that's a heretic because they're wrong. I have no idea where this came from. It's totally not the heart of God. Because here's what Paul's trying to say. Before you came to Christ, all of you were heretics. Before you came to Christ, all of you were in some form of sin. All of you are somehow far from God. How did God treat you when you were a heretic? Did he shun you? Did he treat you with contempt? Did he put you on exploit? Did he throw you on blast? How did God treat you? 
His whole point is kindness mingled with severity. We'll look at that in a second. That's Paul's whole point. He finishes his little section here. He says, these things are excellent and profitable to people. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. He says, but as a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with him, Paul says, this guy's warped, sinful. He's actually living in a self-condemnatory fashion. Paul's whole point is this. Look, we're to treat each other with gentleness. But every once in a while, there are people that come in that feel as if the world must be protected by them. They feel as if they're the watchman. They feel as if they're the one where the entire corpus of doctrinal purity is on their shoulders. They've got to fight to keep it. So they become nasty, bitter, spiteful, angry, mean-hearted people who will go to no ends. I've literally talked with people like this who have said, look, it doesn't matter how I treat other people as long as I preach the truth to them and as long as they get saved from hell. And I would look at that and say, the way that you're doing it is hell. It is hell. You're not extinguishing the fires of hell. You're just spreading them. You're not changing a person's heart. That's not how Jesus dealt with you. It's not how he worked with you. That's Paul's whole point. He says every once in a while there will be people that will come in and they will want to just bring about divisions because these people are about their cause, not about Jesus. They're about promoting their ideas, not about Jesus. They're about standing up for truth or righteousness or their interpretation of truth and righteousness, not about Jesus. And they'll stop at nothing to promote these things, even to the point of dividing churches, dividing people, causing people to stumble and fall. But it doesn't matter to them because in their mind, what is most preeminent, most important is their agenda, their website, their ministry, their ideas, their concepts. And yeah, maybe Jesus will help me as I do this. Because at the end of the day, they look at the world and think, The ones who get the world are the ones who are doctrinally pure. The ones who get the world are the ones who fight for righteousness sake. The ones who get the world are those who stand up and contend for the faith. Yes, Paul says contend, but you need to understand something. When Paul says contend for the faith, he's not saying fight like the Romans. He's saying, yes, you gotta fight, but you don't fight the way the Romans fight. The Romans, they knock out a tooth, and then you turn and knock out a tooth. You know what Jesus said? When the Roman comes to you and slaps you on your face, give me your other cheek. That's how we fight. We fight with creative retribution. We fight in an entirely different way. We contend with an entirely different armament. We contend with an entirely different heart. That's how we fight. That's how we stand up for righteousness. So we don't somehow push justice and truthfulness aside at the extent of just trying to be nice and happy and helpful, because you're really not being helpful if you push away truth. But if all you do is you promote truth, and you're not compassionate and kind, you're not being helpful either. The only person that can be truly helpful are those that are gentle or meek, the way Paul's going to say. So, the last thing is this, is when we fight, we don't fight for victory. We actually fight from victory. This is really important. Because there are some people that look at the church and think, oh my gosh, 
The church is going down. There's all sorts of evil on every side. It's coming in. It's wicked. We've got to fight to keep it out, to push it out, to resist it. And the way they fight, and I would look at it and say, yeah, it's true. There is evil. Yes, we must be aware of it. Yes, we've got to be careful of it. Yes, it's trying to come in. But I also realize, just like what Jesus said, even though the gates of hell, even though we're going to build the church, the gates of hell itself are not going to prevail against the church. So at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, do you believe that or do you disbelieve that? How you answer that question will actually determine how you fight. If you disbelieve that, then you think that the gates of hell are only going to prevail as diligently as you pray or as much as you proclaim and speak and as much as you are capable and able of pushing back the darkness, that's the only way the church is going to prevail. But if you realize that Jesus prevailed, past tense, then I fight from his victory. Not for victory. In other words, it's not me who's trying to advance the church and make things happen. It's God using people fallen like me and you, to live the gospel in a way, to try to live in a way that's consistent with Christ, to honor God, to honor doctrine, to honor his heart in a way that demonstrates not only justice, but kindness. I mean, how many of, you, how many of us have, have you know, been around, we've seen churches or people, Christians we know, they're just grumpy. They're mean. They're not nice. They're just not nice. They, they gossip about people. And they, yeah, everybody has their own reasons why. I mean, everybody justifies it. Like, well, we're fighting for righteousness' sake. Really? Is that the case? Okay, because you seem like an idiot and a jerk. I was a little bit confused. I just a little confused because you seemed really grumpy and mean. The point I'm trying to make is this, guys. You're like, it seems like Brian suffers from not being gentle. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I admit it. That's fine. The point that I would make is this, is that this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is a characteristic of God. So how do we change? How ultimately do we become gentle? That's the real issue. How does this happen? Because we can talk about being gentle. You know, I can yell at you, say, be gentle. It's not going to change you. (laughs) I can yell at you in a polite way to, to be gentle. In a gentle way to be gentle. Um, but you won't be gentle. You can't be. Unless your heart's changed. And, and here's, here's the reality. I, I want you to listen to something. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, and we're almost done here, is God's actually going to say in this Old Testament prophecy, is he's looking forward to a day when God begins to bring forth his solution. Because remember what we said, Psalm 37? The reason why we don't have to freak out, the reason why we don't have to fret, the reason why we don't have to somehow elbow each other away or step over the weak or somehow promote ourselves to get the world, to gain the world. Because in reality, God says, look, evildoers are going to fade. Even though you might think they're all pervasive, they're going to fade, just like the grass of the field is going to fade. Those who are going to get the world are not the ones who you think typically are going to get the world. Because at the end of the day, the ones who are going to get the world are the ones who are gentle, the ones who are meek. And the ones who are meek, the reason why they're meek and the reason why they can be gentle is because they trust that I own it all and that I have a plan. That's the story. And so God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says. I want you to behold my servant, whom I uphold 
my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He says, I will bring forth justice to the nations. What I love about this, we all know uh, that the spirit or the, uh, the servant to whom God is referring to is obviously Jesus. Uh, just as a, as a sideline, side note, one of the things I noticed is right there in the Old Testament, you see the Trinity. God the Father speaking about his servant, the Son, about how the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him and empower him. And God says, I delight in that. We see echoes of that even in the New Testament gospel accounts where God opens the heavens and says, this is my beloved Son whom I love. But listen to carefully what God goes on to say. He says, one of the ways in which you will identify and know my servant, here are the characteristic trademarks of my servant. Here's what he says. A bruised reed he won't break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. But... He will faithfully bring forth or execute justice. So I want you to listen to this. Here's what God says. I have a plan. My plan involves my servant. My servant, you will identify him because when he comes, he will be so gentle, so gentle that even if there were a little wick that was flickering from a little oil lamp, he's not going to walk by it and be like, step it out, kick it out, be like, piece of junk lamp, it's worthless. He's not going to see a little reed that's growing on the side of the road that's kind of wilted and broken. He's not going to be like, kick it, and be like, stupid plant, worthless. He says, a bruised reed, he won't break. A, a little burning smoking flax, he won't completely blow out. Why? Because he's perfectly gentle. Maybe that's you today. Maybe some of you here today feel like that. You look at your life and you feel so fragile. You feel as if your life is on the verge of breaking. Whatever type of circumstances you are, you need to understand something about God. Jesus perfectly represents God. That's why God can place his stamp on Jesus and say, he is my servant. He bears my name perfectly, impeccably. You need to know this. Because when you come to Jesus, he won't stamp you out. He won't break you. No matter how fragile, no matter how flickering you feel as if your life is all about right now. But he goes on to say, and he will execute justice. So Jesus, not only will, be, will he be gentle and meek, but he will also execute justice. One of the most profound ways the story of God's justice, the story of God's gentleness comes together is in the story in this account in the book of John chapter 8, just about done. I'm going to have Nick come on up and we'll be ready to do some worship in a second here. Is the story of this woman who is literally caught in the act of adultery. The Bible tells us that she literally was caught in the act wasn't after the fact or they grabbed her off the street after doing literally in the act perhaps she was naked perhaps she was able to grab a bed sheet and that was about it they take her throw her in front of jesus and they basically say jesus tell us what, what should we do because moses says stone her moses says kill her what do you say and they they thought they were going to trap jesus i'm not going to go in because i can spend another hour and a half speaking on this but i won't because i love you guys so the point of the matter is 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 jesus basically they, they're trying to trap him and jesus says okay look um yeah, she sinned. Yeah, there's adultery. Adultery, you're right. Moses says adultery is, uh, brings about the penalty of death. Um, but then he begins to write in the sand. And some of you, I know, you may have heard a sermon like what was written in the sand. I just want to tell you right now because, again, I love you. Everything you heard about what Jesus wrote in the sand was wrong. Everything. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It doesn't say. It's just all speculation. So, anyways, that was a freebie. So, back to the story. Um, Jesus then says to the people that are around there, because everybody starts walking away. Everybody just leaves. Everybody walks away from the scene. All the leaders, all the people there that, that were trying to frame Jesus, set them up. They're all gone. And then Jesus looks up to the woman who is literally 
caught in the act of adultery. And he says, woman, where are those who are going to throw the stone? She says, there's no one. He basically says, your, your, your whole, the whole court hearing is thrown out. And then Jesus says his final word. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some might read this wrongly and think, well, Jesus is just so kind. He just, he just lets her go. It's not what he's doing. Jesus says, woman, you know what the law says. You're deserving of death. Justice needs to be paid. Justice demands. You were caught in the act. You sinned. But he says, I don't condemn you. How can Jesus say that? The only way that Jesus can say that is because Jesus is not saying, no one's going to throw a stone. But Jesus is saying this. The stones that will be thrown, that should be thrown at you because you are a sinner, they will be intercepted by me. The spikes that should have been driven into your hands because you've defiled God. You've defiled your body. You've sinned against your creator who loves you, who has nothing but the best intentions for you. The spikes that should have been driven into your hand will be driven into mine. The sword that should pierce your side will pierce mine. The crown of thorns that you should be wearing for treason against the king of all kings who owns it all who gave you your very life, your sexuality, all that you are will go on my head. Saying justice is not done away with. He's saying justice is severely going to be met in me. Because of that, I can treat you with incredible kindness and gentleness. You need to know something today. The reason why, the only reason why God can look at you and be so gentle with you is because of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you. The reason why, if you're a Christian, why you can be gentle with other people is because God treated you with incredible gentleness because of the sacrifice that was paid through Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we look at all things. We're not fighting for our kingdom. We're not fighting for our lives. You really think the, your life is yours? You really think the things you face are just simply isolated to you and to how profoundly you fight to keep your life together? You really think that? That's why Jesus would say elsewhere, come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, your life is nothing but a big weight of burdens that you've been trying to carry. The reason why is because when we live our lives thinking the world belongs to us, we must fight to preserve our peace of life, our security, our peace of the pie. Because if nobody fights for me, there is nobody else representing me and therefore I will be left out. Nobody has my interests in mind. And so therefore we fight. We live our lives with so much anxiety, so much fretting, because unless I do something, then I'm going to be left out. At the end of the day, that life leaves you incredibly exhausted. And Jesus says, come unto me. All of you are exhausted. Take my yoke on me. 
Take my yoke on you. Learn of me. Here's what he says. I'm meek. I'm gentle. You know why he can say I'm gentle and meek? Because at the end of the day, Jesus can say, my father has a plan. He has a plan. You may not know what it is. He might not give you the whole rule book. He normally doesn't. But my father has a plan. Fret not over evildoers. Freak out not over the things in this world. Commit your ways to God. Trust in him. The earth doesn't belong to those who fight hardest, who have the most money. The earth belongs to those who God chooses to give it. And God says, I choose to give it to those who take me at my word, who trust me, who trust in my solution for all things, trust in my son. To them, God says, I give all things. Rejoicing flows out of that. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Let us rejoice and be glad. Because God chooses so joyously to give it to his sons and daughters who trust in him. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests... Please don't feel any obligation to give. This is your church. This is an opportunity for you to give joyfully back to God. As we sing, as we worship, you can partake of communion. I want you to remember the price that Jesus paid to bring about this relationship that you can have with God whereby there is security, there is a sense of peace, whereby God treated you with gentleness, came at an incredible price of Jesus laying his life down on the cross for you taking your shame. That's why Jesus can look at the woman caught in adultery and say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And why Jesus can look at you and say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The price has been paid. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We uh, worship you now. We commit our souls, our lives, our thoughts into your hand. God, we just confess that oftentimes we, we forget that and we want to, we, we, we are overwhelmingly aware of the fact that sometimes things may not be in control because we're so quickly looking at evil in this world and we think it prevails. But God, evil doesn't prevail. Death doesn't prevail. Jesus prevails. So we look to Jesus now. God, not only does your love remain, but your love changes us. It changes us. It never changes itself, but it changes us. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you provided a way to remove the cancer of sin from us without destroying us. God, the way that you did that was Jesus took it all for us. God, we pray right now that you would send us out of here with great joy in our hearts because of what you've done. And Lord, great kindness that we could show kindness because we're, we're not fighting for our world. It's not our world. It's your world. And we already know what you will do with your world, that you will prevail. Evil won't conquer. Wickedness won't prevail. 
Because like the grass grows and withers, so does evil. So does the tumor of sin. And yet, God, you call us to simply trust you. Trust your plan. Trust your purposes. And God, the purpose of God was embodied in Jesus. So we trust Jesus as your plan, as your purpose, as your solution to rescue us, to rescue this earth from wickedness and evil and sin. Thank you for that. Send us out of here, God, like a bunch of people with really good news to proclaim, to shout it from the rooftops, to proclaim it as if it's really good news because you reign, provided the means whereby we can be reconciled with God and have life. In Jesus' name, amen.